going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Abundant Journey Podcast. We are so glad you're hanging out with us today. As always, Nick James here. I am here to be your host along with my co-host, Nick Offenkamp. Nick, what's going on, man? Hey, I, uh, man, I'm excited. I'm excited about this morning. I'm excited about our guest. And one of my favorite things about uh, doing this podcast is the number of connections that we've made from all over the United States and even a little bit uh, beyond that. And I will let you uh, introduce our guest. I'm not going to steal uh, that thunder. Um, so I'll throw it back to you and you can bring our guest in. Yeah, no, thank you. And we are hanging out with Brian Tibbs today. He is a real estate investor and he has an incredible story, both with mission work and also releasing a book here. We're going to dive into that today. He's got a lot of experience on raising capital. So man, this conversation can go a lot of different directions. But before we uh, do that, let's bring in man. Brian, what's going on, man? Hey guys, the Knicks. I'm so op- I'm so, so excited to have this opportunity to be here with you guys, and I'm not going to forget your name. So there we go. No, no that's easy. <laughs> and uh, you know, I think I, I've referenced it multiple times, but we've had one episode with one other Nick, so it was three Nicks, and that was a, that was a little doozy. But uh, other than wow. that, you know, we have fun hanging out with people. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Yeah, thanks again. I'm I'm, gra- I'm glad to be here. Well, 100%. Brian, absolutely, and and thanks for again for spending some time with us. So. You know, we love to get into the backstory. Tell it before we do that, though. Tell us a little bit about what a day in the life looks like for you today, and then maybe we'll jump into kind of your story and how you got here. Yeah, so um, I, you know, I've I've not been working a W two job, you know, a, a salaried job since we retired from the mission work. Um, so every day is a little bit different. Um, I'm more actively involved in my real estate. Uh, portfolio and the different funds that I've got that I've got uh, deployed there. So, it, it, a different one day I could be out at a property uh, dealing with a, a a city complaint, or I could be out uh, working with a contractor deciding which direction to go. You know, found a uh, a problem with the piping, or we got cheaper materials, or you know, whatever. Just kind of dealing with a, a remodel job, or uh, uh, working with my team that we we do short term rentals both in Idaho and Arizona working with them to try to figure out how to dial in our systems a little bit tighter. So, you know, the life of an entrepreneur every day is, is different, which is the way I love it. Right. I, oh, yeah. I would struggle if I was stuck in a routine where I, everything the same happened every day. So. No doubt. That's uh that's awesome. And, and you're full time now then with uh, what you're doing in real estate investing full time and managing your portfolio. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I would say. If someone asks me, "What do I do?" I, I say I'm a real estate investor. Um, now, one of the one of my motivations when we came back from the mission work is is to spend more time with my kids, and so um, I do uh, focus on time with family and with my wife and 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 around the house as well. So I'm trying not to, but my nature is to go pretty hard. But I'm trying not to be, you know, that full time, you know, hardcore uh, moving forward and trying to stay more balanced. Totally. It's a tricky balance yeah. uh, because entrepreneurship does demand so much and there's so much opportunity, yeah. especially once the ball gets rolling. Yep. And so to, to figure out how to press that gas pedal and remember your why and what, what you're trying to have your entrepreneurship enable you to do with family, uh, that's, that's a big deal. Give us just a little bit of insight on just the family makeup. How old are your kids? How many kids do you got? Yeah. So we got three kids. My oldest daughter is 18. She'll be graduating this May. This year, May, 
which is freaky. Wow. Uh, and wow. then my 15 year old son, uh, he's a freshman. And then my 13 year old daughter is the, is the last one. So we have three. Okay. And in the teenage years, yeah, and we could do a, a, a whole nother uh, podcast. I'm sure just <laughs> on giving us uh, both Nick and I, we both have three kids, but ours are about 10 years younger. Yeah. Like we're, we're about 10 years behind in terms of our kids ages. So, uh, you know, part of me just jumps at like, Oh man, I need to ask a whole bunch of questions there, but I <laughs> <Yeah>. will refrain. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep this to, uh, to your story and entrepreneurship. But you know, if you want to drop any parenting gold nuggets in there, Absolutely. Uh, none of us are going to complain. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, here's the one thing I will say on that is, you know, sometimes you say, oh, I love it when they're four and they're seven. Every age is so amazing. Mm-hmm. And now that my daughter's about to graduate, I'm like much more conscious of every single opportunity that we have to spend together because I know she's flying the coop. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, it, sometimes that's thought of as like the, the mom is the one that freaks out about that. But I'm, I'm, I'm not looking forward to that. You know, so, uh, so I will just say, just enjoy every, every age, every advancement, every change. It's, it's all a part of the fun journey. That's a good word. Absolutely. No, that's a good word. And I think that's a great way to start the show. So let's, uh, let's jump here back into your story. Again, I alluded to the fact that you've done a lot of mission work, but Let's even go back further than that if you want and tell us kind of your upbringing, your story, you know, were there entrepreneurs in your life early on? What did life look like in the early years? Yeah, so I had the opportunity, a real good opportunity to grow up in a family of entrepreneurs. So uh, my dad's father was a, he owned a tractor dealership. So he was kind of in a farming community, but he owned a tractor dealership and was always involved in some sort of entrepreneurial thing. Uh, and then my dad started his own company when I was young. And so that's all I knew is, was business ownership in the family. And so that's really where I was exposed to the concepts of entrepreneurship and, and even to a lesser extent, uh, real estate investing, although that was not my dad's primary focus. In fact, I, I was, I was in my late teens before I'd even heard of renting or, or, or renting out to strangers, you know, uh, and, and, and building a business that way. So, so that was, that was new to me, but yeah, I grew up in, in that environment where, where, you know, whatever income we were going to generate, it was based on our effort and our investment and, and our ingenuity and all that kind of stuff. And that's, that was vital for me. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's, it's unique, right? Like a lot of the folks that we've had, uh, I would say even the majority of the folks that we've had on the the show uh, kind of grew up in the uh, parents were working W2 jobs yeah. and they saw an opportunity to, to jump and build something of their own. But I imagine um, that that has to be profoundly impactful when that's just the, the culture of your family that you yeah. grew up in seeing the, the entrepreneurship. Um, did you see struggles in that too? Like, as you were growing up, were there ever points where you're like, oh man, uh, based upon like the uh, struggles that, that my family's seen in entrepreneurship, maybe I should just do a, a W2 gig. Maybe entrepreneurship's not the way. <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't, as a teenager, I don't know that I had that deep of, of thinking to be real sure. quick and honest. Um, but I, I was always wired for this. And I think my environment has a lot to do with that. You know, your environment kind of sets you in a certain direction and nobody in my family was surprised. Um, Mm -hmm. when I graduated from college and I really kind of went down that path of, of 
business first, which of course later in my story, I basically abandoned all that and went overseas to serve uh, in the mission field. But uh, but nobody was surprised that that was the, the course that I took. That said, I you know I went and got W two jobs in high school and in college, and 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 yeah, nobody was forcing me to do anything. So, uh, but I have siblings that have W two jobs now. So just because you grew up in a entrepreneurial family doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you're going to do, you know? Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, maybe we can jump to, since you've alluded to, um, going to college and then starting a business or starting an entrepreneurship early before taking a, a hard turn into a missionary career. Um, you want to tell us what, what your first steps in entrepreneurship yourself were? Yeah. So I, I just, I had in my mind and, and I don't know even where I heard this, but I had in my mind that the wealthiest people are wealthy from real estate. And I, and I, and I couldn't point to a person that that was the case or a book that I'd read, but that was an idea that I had in my head. And so I kind of wanted to be in real estate, um, from the beginning. And the very first, uh, investment that I made, I was 19, I was in college and I literally just wanted to live for free. I didn't want to pay for housing. And so I bought a duplex and uh, put a tenant in one side and rented out uh, and lived in the other. And that's, you know, today we call that house hacking. But uh, back in the day, it was live in one side and rent out the other. So that's what I did. And then I got roommates from college to, to stay in the extra room and, and on my side and almost covered my mortgage, which I was trying to cover the whole thing. But in hindsight, that was pretty much a home run to, to be able to almost cover that expense. So that was my first uh, entrance into into real estate investing. And then from there, I just kept as quickly as I could adding more, more units. So did you have anybody in that teaching you how to do that? Or was that something kind of self-taught? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that was kind of the day before all of the digital courses and YouTube oh, yeah. options and stuff. So, I mean, where did you learn that? Or was it just kind of, hey, I'm going to take that entrepreneurial spirit of my family and, and, and learn something new? Yeah. So actually, and I have a story about this in my book that's coming out here real soon about the first moment that I really kind of decided I want to do real estate. And it was, I overheard a conversation between my grandfather and my dad, and they were talking about buying a duplex, which I didn't even know what a duplex was. And I was just kind of listening in and, and I thought they were nuts. I'm like, why would you, who wants to go unclog a toilet at two in the morning? Who, who wants to deal with somebody who doesn't pay you their rent and then you got to pay the mortgage. And, and I just, it just was so baffling to me why anybody would do that. And, and so I kind of interrupted them and, and they were somewhat surprised that I was listening. I was like 16 or 17 at the time and, uh, had never shown any interest in any adult conversations. <laughs> um, and, and, and they kind of took it a challenge upon themselves to, walk me through the the thinking and walk me through the process. And, you know, I, we were probably talking for two or three hours or something like that to where I finally came to the conclusion of understanding, okay, they're going to get a management company that's going to deal with the toilets. They're going to screen the tenants and they've put in budget in case somebody doesn't pay and, and they've still got this all figured out. And it was just, it was magical to me. And so um, that I would say that was my primary influence. And then, of course, as you get into it, you you have agents and you have handyman and you have all these different kind of components that come along and you kind of piece it together. But yeah, it was 1996, well before the time of having any online education, YouTube university, you know, all that kind of stuff yeah. didn't exist. And so I just kind of figured it out. And actually a funny anecdote to that. So I left the business world, went to the mission field for 16 years 
came back in 2021. And when I decided, okay, I'm just going to pour my energy, my kind of my career energy into expanding my real estate portfolio, I had 17 units at the time. And I, and I said to myself in a moment of honesty, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I've been out of the country for 16 years. I've only had like a quarter of my brain power even looking at this stuff. I've been really focused on the mission. And so I would just, you know, sell something I didn't like anymore and buy something else. And I always bought, you know, just off the MLS. I didn't know anything else. So I went uh, to Google and I typed real estate education and bigger pockets was one of the first things that came up and I bigger pockets, isn't it supposed to be deeper pockets? <laughs> so, so I clicked the button and, and from there, I, you know, started listening to Brandon and then Brandon and David, and then, uh, went yeah. through the kind of the whole series of their podcast. And then, then I felt like I was somewhat educated. And so, uh, and here I am now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I imagine that there is probably a cool experience in that of, uh, yeah, learning some new things, but also them putting language to a lot of things that yeah. it sounds like you were just intuitively doing, like the the house hacking. Maybe you didn't have the term for it then, but right. uh, that's kind of the uh, Turner was the one that had introduced me um, to that concept. Right. And of course, I'm I'm excited for you to uh, unpack that. It, we'll, we'll get to that uh, a sure. little bit further because I think that that's a, as I understand it, a big component of your work and your book and uh, how you help people get into. Exactly. Uh, real estate investing. So I'm um, excited to, to dive in more there. But um, as you started building your real estate portfolio just out of college, 19 years old, um, did you have big goals for it then? Like, were you doing the uh, the equity play of that? I'm going to buy and hold these properties forever. Did you have kind of the mindset of that? Hey, I'm just trying to cash flow here. And then uh, what was the, the initial vision or was it really just let's build this plane while it's in the air and yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it was, there was no, well, I would say that the extent of my goals was I wanted to add at least one unit every year. And okay. so that, that was my goal. So if I bought a duplex, okay, I'm set for two years. Right. Um, and I did for the first 10 years before I moved, well, it was a little bit quicker than that. Um, I moved to Guatemala in 2005. So in the, in the nine year span, I got to 10 units before wow. we left, before we left for the field, I ended up selling six of those 10. Um, but anyway, that's, that's a, that's a different, that was a different motivation, right? But yeah, I got to 10 units before I was 25. Yeah. So in that, Brian, you know, you had obviously been growing this, you probably saw some level of the trajectory this was going to take you in terms of success. And you were seeing the power of real estate, both with equity and appreciation, also cash flow. But then you did make a, a pretty significant shift and jumping into the mission field. So kind of walk through that part of the story. Yeah. So I, you know, cash flow, there was no cash flow. So back, my first loan was a 9% interest loan hmm. and which was why it was hard to cover the mortgage with, even with tenants and roommates. Um, and so, and, and, it, and I was born and raised in Idaho and that's where I started investing. And in that time, now it's known as an expensive market, but in that time it was like sluggish growth. And, and so the, the real estate wasn't really performing super well until like that 2005, 2006 timeframe when everything just kind of exploded. Um, and fortunately, that's when I sold six of my 10 units. And so I was, I paid off the other 
mortgages and moved overseas, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and went and went in a different direction. Yeah. And let's talk about that. I mean, that's a, that's a big move for anybody to make. And so, um, what was going on in as much as you're willing to share, uh, behind the scenes that, that made you go, all right, uh, while real estate has been good, I'm growing this portfolio, uh, I'm going to leave it all behind and do something totally different. Yeah. So it wasn't something that I wanted to do. I, that's, that's the honest answer. Um, mm. but I, at the time I was dating, who's now my wife, Jill Bramhall. Um, and, and I had this, I just had this feeling. I'm not going to say that, that I heard an audible voice of God or anything like that, but I just had this sensation. I had this feeling that this is not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be a missionary. And I didn't have any clue what that meant. There's nobody in my family that was ever a pastor or a missionary or anything like that. Hmm. And so it just seemed like, well, this is just some weird thing in my own head. Um, And it just wouldn't go away. So it took me about a year to go from when I first kind of started feeling that that tug to where I finally said, okay, okay, I'll do it. And I I was Hmm. kind of angry. I was kind of bitter. I was like, I'm going to have to... uh, quit the work that I'm doing. I'm going to lose my business. I'm probably going to lose my girlfriend because, uh, you know, we'd never talked about anything like this. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, and I, and I was like, I'm going to have to talk to her and say, hey, we're going to, I'm going to move to Africa and I'm going to start speaking like language, right? Or something <laughs> like that. And, and so uh, I just assumed that the, the relationship was over. So um, it, w- it was a Sunday. I remember I was, I was telling her that I had made the decision to go and I was almost like, depressed about it. Like, I, 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 this is something that I feel like I have to do. And I, you know, I'm sorry. Mm. And I, you know, I knew this is what, wasn't what you signed up for and, and that kind of stuff. And, and she said, well, that's funny. I've always felt a call to be a missionary as well. <laughs> so I went from thinking we're losing, I'm losing my girlfriend to, we got engaged not too long after that and, and got uh-huh. married. And then a year after we got married, we moved sight unseen to Guatemala with what could fit in her two suitcases and my two suitcases. And away we went. Wow. Oh my goodness. And what was the, uh, the work initially? Like what was the calling down to Guatemala and what did you start doing there? Yeah. So we literally just showed up as volunteers and and she and I just kind of said, we're just working for a church. And, and we, uh, we said, you know, we we can do anything for two years. So we signed a two year volunteer contract. We can do anything for two years. So let's just go figure it out and we'll, we'll see what happens. So we moved to Guatemala and we just, were working in a a mission office doing nothing significant. And me being the entrepreneur, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I want to do something impactful and I, I want to plant churches. And so uh, we ended up uh, after one year in Guatemala, we moved to Argentina and we started a our own nonprofit. Ardeo Global was its name and its mission was to plant churches. And over the course of the following 15 years, so we were there 16 years total, over the course of 15 years, we uh, recruited, trained, and sent 300 and somewhere around 380 missionaries, planted 96 churches in 11 different countries, raised over $20 million uh, for all you know the church buildings and the missionary support and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that was, and then that all we finished all that in 2021. Wow. My word. (laughs) What a ride over those 15 years. You'd mentioned kind of before we hit record on the show too, that uh, five different countries uh, that you had had lived in during that time as well, all in South America. So 
Uh, Guatemala is Central America, and then Argentina, Peru, Ecuador, and Brazil are in South America. Okay. Man. That's wild. Again, where do you you go from that? But, uh, you know, I mean, shifting in the entrepreneurial spirit, you know, I'm sure there's so many things you learn along the way that's translated to today, you know, both with raising money and assembling teams and training. So maybe tell us a couple of your favorite things you learned. And if you want, maybe some things that were challenging. I mean, you know, what, what did you love? What's translated to what you're doing today? And and maybe what were some hard things about it? Yeah, man, I, I, you know, every step of life is formative for the next step. I, I think that's, Mm-hmm. unavoidable, um, you know, both good and bad. Um, and for sure the work in the work that I did as an entrepreneur beforehand absolutely shaped my work going into it. I didn't have church culture. I didn't have mission culture. I had entrepreneur culture and that absolutely was the driving factor in whatever success we had. Um, and because I didn't think like an institution, I thought like an entrepreneur, for example, I didn't take any pay for the first three years when we started the nonprofit. That's just when you start a business, that's what you do. You don't, you don't get paid. And so every dollar that came in, rather than using it to pay my bills, I pushed it back out to invest in, in growth. And so, uh, and then I will say the same thing now, my phase in life now, um, the influence of mission work is, is undeniable. Um, you know, the work that I've done with, really wealthy families that funded a lot of what we did has helped shape my understanding of, of what money is for, um, in a profound way. And that's why, uh, world changing generosity is a big part of what I'm trying to support and sponsor and promote now. Um, because I saw, I think I'll just, I'll, this, this has been very impactful for me personally. Um, I would, you know, whenever you have to ask someone for money, there's a human uh, part of you that hates that, mm-hmm. right? And and I would go into any meeting, any fundraising meeting with a little bit of anxiety. It got better over the years, but I would go in with some anxiety, like I'm about to ask this person for money and they worked hard for it. And am I going to be a good steward of it? And are they going to kick me out of their house? You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, never was that encounter a negative thing. And almost never was it something that they didn't thank me for coming and asking. Hmm. And I found that people who'd been really successful that had figured out how to use their money to change the world through their generosity are the happiest, most well-adjusted, most accomplished people that I've been able to associate with. And I think that if you get to a certain level of, of wealth and success and you can embrace that part of your responsibility with what you've been entrusted with, it can be a real kick to where you find something that makes, you know, find a cause that brings you to tears when there's an injustice in the world or there's a, there's a, there's an emptiness or there's something that is lacking in someone's life. And through your obedience and generosity, you can have a true impact on that life, on that town, on that city, on that country. Um, and, and just, no, even if nobody else knows, but you know that you've made a true impact on the world. I mean, that's so much better than saying, Hey, I bought my jet or, you know, that right. other stuff that we spend our, our resources on for our own comfort. It just is so small in comparison. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, 
I love that reframing of giving people the opportunity to give. I mean, yeah. we, we think about it in terms of uh, like on the entrepreneurial side, you find a deal and you bring the deal to your wealthy investors and they're so grateful to have the opportunity if it's a real deal. Um, yeah. But that that's uh, very similar with, uh, with, all the, the opportunity to do good in the world with your generosity. Like you're, yeah. you're uh, the conduit of bringing them the, the deal to do good with their funds and yeah. invest in uh, people and places who need it most and where it can have the most impact. And so I can totally see, uh, while it, it feels counterintuitive at first, uh, why people would thank you for bringing them that opportunity to, uh, to do good in the world with the money that they've earned and made. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's true. So that has shaped part of what I'm doing. But also, you know, something you're saying about challenges. Um, the biggest thing that I struggled with that I'm so grateful for now that I'm in the United States, you know, outside the United States, specifically in Latin America, which is my experience, um, government is not in support of the entrepreneur. Government mm -hmm. is in opposition to the entrepreneur. And the systems are are built to, um, and I think the intent is good. It's, it's to support the working class. It's to support the poor class. Um, but it makes life as an entrepreneur is extremely difficult there in the nonprofit sector specifically is my response, my, my experience in that, but in the, in the for-profit sector as well. So coming here into the United States where I can, I can click a button and same day I receive something from Amazon as an example. Um, that's like, that's like living in heaven. <laughs> yeah. um, getting your driver's license in 45 minutes. That is like, Oh my gosh, it didn't take me six months. This is amazing. Um, and getting a business license or getting an LLC formed in 25 minutes with $25, just all of the things that, that the opportunities that we have in America. So this is something that I like to share with people is we live in a country where we are encouraged to and the platforms are set up to make us successful. And there's opportunities all over the place. You know, sometimes I hear someone say, well, I'm just waiting for an opportunity to fall on my lap. And I have a, a saying that kind of tries to reframe that. Opportunities don't fall in our lap. Opportunities pass through, pass through our line of sight. If we recognize mm -hmm. them as an opportunity, we got to reach out and grab it before it flies right on by and somebody else, somebody else takes it. So we live in a land of opportunities. We've got to learn how to identify those opportunities. And then we got to have the guts to grab them and do something with them. So that's been a formative as well from my time in Latin America. Mm -hmm. That's so good. And I, you know, I think your vantage point of being out of the country, we've had a few other folks in similar situations. And I, I love that part just to get to kind of dive into what culture is like there and how those yeah. sorts of things just play out very differently because most of us aren't, aren't familiar with that. So let's shift a little bit here as we, I want to spend some time talking about, about the book and what you're doing today, but you know, let's sure. kind, of, kind of get you to, to present day. So you guys came home and really what was the, what was the thought process, the strategy? I mean, were you coming home saying, Hey, we're going to get after real estate some more or what was the, what were you thinking? Yeah. I, you know, we had been overseas for 16 years and uh, we had just gone through COVID, which COVID in the, in the U S was tough, but COVID in South America, man, it was locked down. Mm -hmm. um, things, you know, the, the medical infrastructure is not as good and 
there's a lot more fear and maybe a lot more government control than what we're used to in the U.S. And it was just, you know, as a, a, a ministry is all about being in the streets, being in the communities, being in homes, being in busy shopping centers where we have access to people. And that was all closed. And so uh, it just was, a, it was a very, very difficult time from a ministerial standpoint. Plus our kids were now entering high school and uh, they had all gone to five different schools over their, 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 you know, early uh, education years. And so we just decided, okay, this is what we have done in the field is what we have done. It is time for us to, to go back. And so we uh, came back to the U.S., planted ourselves here in Phoenix, and I knew I was going to do something in real estate, but I really didn't have any grand plans. I had, did not have a plan to write a book um, or do any of that other stuff. I, we were just going to come back and decompress. And you know, one, another one of the factors is our our portfolio had grown to the point to where we didn't need to need to work. I didn't need a job. I didn't need the paycheck that I was getting from the from the nonprofit. And so. We decided, okay, well, we're going to come back. We're going to take a year off, and we're just going to see what what uh, what develops. Hmm. How amazing that must have been! So that was because, as I wrote in my my notes, um, you had sold about half of your your properties, but you'd kept the other half, and you'd, you'd paid them off pretty much before uh, moving out of the country. And so just through appreciation and, uh, rental growth, I take it that that's how you're able to, you know, sustain, uh, come back to already having a a sustainable living through that. Yeah. So we, we had 10 units, sold six of them, paid off the other four. Um, and, and then the world fell apart. So 2008, 2009 was a disaster. But we had a little bit of cash still laying around from this, the liquidation of those units. And so in 2009, I started investing again fairly okay. aggressively. And we built our portfolio up to 17 units uh, by the okay. time we, we left in 2021. And, it, and, you know, we would go back. We'd go back to the States for like a six-week, you know, visit family and raise money and that kind of stuff every year. And it was during that time that I would take a look at what I had and, okay, what do I want to get rid of? Well, let's upgrade this. Let's buy, let's sell two and buy four. You know, that kind of yeah. stuff is what we did, you know, on a very, very part-time basis over the years. Yeah. That's awesome though. I mean, what a amazing thing to be able to, to come home to, uh, having these, yeah. these assets. Um, and at that point, as you were kind of with whatever capacity you had while you're out of the country, purchasing properties, still doing single family duplexes, or were you starting to diversify the asset classes that you were real estate investing in? Yeah. So I had, uh, single families, duplexes, fourplexes, um, was what my portfolio was made up of. And it's a it's kind of a fun pivot story. In 2016, uh, we had actually come back to the U.S., but because we had tenants in all of our properties, we had to ask to stay uh, with people. And there was this one couple that had a house for us that we were able to stay in. So we f- were flying all night long. We, we get to the house at one o'clock in the morning and walk in. And I took like three steps before I realized I was walking in water. So the house had flooded and, uh, you know, it's early in the morning. I call the owner. We get the water main shut off. He comes to kind of assess the situation. And by three o'clock in the morning, we're crashing in a hotel. Well, there's five of us. And at that time, our kids were quite a bit younger. And I just remember waking up the next morning and telling my wife, we can't stay here for 
three weeks. You know, we can't, we can't be in this hotel for three weeks. And so she's like, well, why don't you go look up that, that, what is it called? Airbnb, what is Airbnb? Oh yeah. Okay. So we pulled up Airbnb and I looked for three bedroom furnished homes in Boise. There were only three and they were all like 200 bucks a night. (laughs) And after I stopped complaining about how expensive that was and the limit of options, I was like, wait a minute. How much am I getting per night for my houses? <laughs> it's like 30 bucks a night is what I'm getting. So uh, two months later, I did a test on two two or three of my units. And then two months after that, I switched everything over to short-term rentals. And from okay. there, we started kind of getting away from the fourplex and going back to nicer single-family homes. And, and we have some duplexes and stuff still too, but we primarily focus on single-family homes. Okay. Wow. That's a cool shift as far as, uh, and, and I love how uh, there's a theme here of kind of just stumbling upon uh, these these amazing opportunities and being somewhat early to them, right? You were yeah. saying 2017 is when you made the shift. 2016. 2016. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's really uh, before the explosion of growth oh, yeah. in uh, the, the Boise area. Yeah. Uh, that's uh that's incredible. I, I love it. Okay. Sorry, but then you you came back, you've got these 17 um units kind of decompressing and figuring out what the the next steps are. Um walk us through just how that has unfolded since 2021. The the opportunities that you've come across and sort of the refining of the vision of how you're using your time, what you're building, what you're growing. Yeah. Uh, anybody who knows me knows I'm a I'm a goal setter, and so I I said, you know what? Here's what I want to do. I want to kind of leverage the Boise properties, and I want to double my portfolio in two years. And so, because I'm dedicated to this full time, why not? So uh, we did. We uh, we're now at 35 units, um, and we did that in about a year and a half. And uh, at the start of uh, 2023, I actually launched my first um, investment fund or investor pool. I'd always just invested with my myself. And so now, and so now I'm bringing on investors and we're, uh, we're doing the, doing the ride together. I'm just using kind of my knowledge and, and experience and, and sweat <laughs> and work and, and bringing in investor money to, to try to grow the portfolio for forward. So that's what we're going to want to work on here going forward. Cool. No, that's great. And, and, and so Again, the book, it's something you didn't set out to do, but it's its kind of you've stumbled, I'm sure, into that as you've stumbled into multiple different things. So where did the idea come from with the book? And let's let's dive in there a little bit. Yeah. So when we – and, you know, it wasn't an easy decision to decide to stop doing the mission work because that was so much a part of our lives. And, of course. you know, you go through – maybe anybody who's been in ministry can identify with – kind of that struggle of, is it okay if I stop doing this? Like, am, am I allowed to stop doing this? Um, and uh, do I need to get a certified letter from heaven or something to <laughs> with permission? So so it wasn't an easy process. And when we finally did decide to do it, I, I well, in the process, I was kind of consulting with some people that I trusted and respected and, and, and that they would always ask, well, what are you going to do next? And I'm like, well, nothing. I'm I'm gonna I'm not gonna do anything. Well, how are you gonna pay the bills? And then, you know, I kind of sheepishly kind of explained the situation. And and I remember this one conversation. This guy goes, How old are you? And at the time I said, I, well, I'm 44. And he goes, And you don't have to work, like you have enough savings to live for a whole year. And I'm like, Well, we we've built up a portfolio and I don't need to go get a job. It's it's covering our costs and, and growing still. And he's, and he's like, how much did you make as a missionary? You know, like kind of like that taboo yeah. question. And and the answer, I didn't know at the time, 
but it wasn't much. And I later went back and calculated it. I made $9.20 per hour average. Obviously, at the end, I was making more. In the beginning, I was making nothing. But $9.20 average for 16 years, and we still were able to do this. And so when I answered his question, he was like, do you think I could do this? And and would you teach me how to do it? And when I had two or three conversations or four or five conversations like that, I was like, you know, maybe there's something I have to offer in this part of my life that I never talked about. You know, in the mission field, you're not going to talk about money. You're not going to talk about politics. You're going to talk about people's problems and their lives and what they need. And and so this was, it wasn't an easy decision for me to actually start talking about this because it's kind of taboo. But I decided this is the next way that I can help people is kind of help people break free from that paycheck to paycheck grind. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, I'm testimony to that, that even on a meager salary uh, with enough determination and and setting the right parameters in your lives and looking at each paycheck with the correct uh, uh, philosophy, um, you can build a multi-million dollar net worth um, if you just follow the right steps. And so that's what the book is all about. Yeah. And the book is called The Hacker Method. Yep. I got a copy of it right here. The Hacker Method comes out February 27th. I love it. the the uh, The cover art and everything is is beautiful. It's a uh, it's a good looking book, and um, kind of just talk us. I mean, you've done I think a good job there describing the genesis of the the book, and I think in there captured uh, a pretty good profile of who your intended audience there is. Yeah. Um, kind of the the person that's in that the grind of working a a W two, maybe struggling to really increase yeah. their income income, but has doubts about their ability to build wealth through real estate. Am I getting that, summarizing that right as far as who you're? Perfect. Yes, okay. that's exactly right. Solid. So um, just kind of talk us through where, where the book starts. Like what's the what's the first step that you're uh, encouraging people to to take or what's the first real takeaway that you want them to get as they're diving into the, the book there? So I'll start, I'll start with the, the art. Um, it's yeah. not just a cute pig in an airplane. So if you've ever heard, there's kind of an old saying, when you say something's not, or when you say some, so-and-so is going to have, such and such is going to happen, the, the phrase would be, yeah, when pigs fly, right? Which means, yeah, yeah that's never going to happen. Well, I have a pig that's also a piggy bank, right? So yeah, I'm never going to break out of this paycheck to paycheck grind. No matter what I do, it doesn't work. Uh, pigs can't fly. Well, if they climb in an airplane, they can fly. Um, so it's a hack. They, it, a pig is not going to sprout wings and fly, but he can jump in something else that has wings and he can fly. And so the, the, the method of the hacker method is an acronym. So H A C K E R is five steps. And if you're doing the math, hacker has six letters, but the third step is C K cash is king investing. So that's mm-hmm. two letters is one step. So the, the book walks through the five steps, how to hack your way into the wealthy class, even on limited income. Uh, H is hack your lifestyle. You've got to begin to look at your paycheck um, in a different way than most people look at their paycheck. Most people, and me included when I first started, I'd get this paycheck and right out of high school when I didn't have any money and now I've got a real job. Wow, how am I going to spend all this money? So I would look at my paycheck and I would think, how can I spend this money? What we need to do as people who are building wealth is we need to look at our paycheck and we need to say, okay, paycheck, Instead of you telling me what I'm going to do, I'm going to tell you what to do. 
50% of you is going to cover my living expenses. 40% of you is going to be investing for my future. And 10% is going to be given away to make the world a better place. So we talk about how to hack your lifestyle to make that not just possible, but also not uncomfortable. Because a lot of people think, oh, 50% of my income, how in the world could I live on that? Well, we dive into ways that you can do that. House hacking is one of the key components to that, to where you've got to look at your personal spending differently than everybody around you looks at their personal spending. And if you can capture that house, you can capture that lifestyle hack, then you can go to allocation budgeting, which is the A. Then you can go to cash is king investing, which is the fun part. Like how do you turn $1 into two, into 10, into 20, into a thousand, into a million. And then (laughs) E exponentiality. How do you get good at getting fantastic returns on your investment? And then R is review what you're doing. Is it still working? If so, repeat. Uh, If it's not, if, if what you're reviewing is not working, don't repeat it, rework it. And then once you've reviewed it, repeated it, reworked it, then it's time to reward yourself. And the last R, it's strategically placed at the end because you need to do the hard work up front, uh, the ha- lifestyle hacking, the budgeting, the investing. And then at the end, that's where you get to reward yourself. That's, awesome. that's such a helpful framework. I love that. Good. <laughs> that's my yeah, goal. yeah, yeah. No, I, that's such a, a clear breakdown. And so I know that uh, for our listeners, that's going to be extremely valuable uh, for them to to pick up and uh, to to go through. Um, one of the the concepts that you mentioned, uh, I'm not sure exactly how explicitly you get into it in the book, but as I've um, listened to some of your things on on YouTube, you talk about adapting microculture. Yeah, and I was hoping that you. Could could unpack that because that's a concept that I, I'm not as familiar with and wanted to understand a bit more of what you mean there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is a, that's the key to all this, honestly. So, and, and having lived in other cultures, uh, I'm hyper aware of culture. I, I'm aware mm. of my family's culture, my neighborhood culture. And to be honest, if you grow up in a culture it's one of those things that you are in and it affects you in a lot of different ways, but you're probably not even aware of it. But because I've been exposed to such radically different cultures, I'm hyper sensitive to it. And sometimes I see Americans doing something that a Latino would never do. And I chuckle to myself and know I can't say anything because nobody's going to understand why that's funny to me. Right. <laughs> um, but that has helped me to identify what are the primary reasons why someone who genuinely wants to get out of the paycheck to paycheck grind, but just really struggles figuring out how to do that? It's because of the culture that they came from, the culture that they're living in. Macro culture, I talk about this in the book, but macro culture, I would think of as like your national culture or your regional culture. Like Southern culture is different from Midwest, which is different from the Northwest, which is different than the Southwest uh, and different from the Northeast. Uh, even in just within the United States. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Austin is different than Dallas. Phoenix is different than Tucson. LA is different than San Francisco. So you have all these macro cultures that are, that are affecting you. Microculture is going to be maybe the neighborhood you live in. Uh, it's going to be the family that you live in. It's going to be the family that you came from. And macro culture, people like Abraham Lincoln or Julius Caesar, they shift macro culture. The rest of us, we can have an influence on microculture, and we all can. So if you are in a job culture that is holding you back, change jobs. That's how you change microculture. Mm-hmm. 
if you're on a street of people, uh, let's say you're on a street of people that are mostly college age and they're they're throwing keggers in the in the street every weekend, you can change that culture. If you are in a neighborhood where you feel like, man, I'm going to make a bad decision because the three houses next to me, they all have brand new Corvettes. And if I don't get a brand new Corvette, I'm not keeping up with my neighbors. Man, you need to shake loose of that and change that culture. Within your own local family, you can change your local family culture. You can have a family meeting and say, you know what? We're going to learn together entrepreneurship. We're going to find mentors that's going to talk to us about what does it take to go from where we're at, struggling paycheck to paycheck with credit card bills up up to our nostrils, and how are we going to break out of this? And we're going to listen to people who have done it, and we're going to break free from this. That's microculture that everybody with with the determination and the decision in their own hearts can have an impact on. It's not like macro culture. Well, I'm not going to change the culture of of my city. Uh, so what's the point? We can change our microculture. That's such a helpful framework too, because it, to your point, is that's the things you can control. And I think yeah. a lot of times we have this perspective, maybe naturally, or maybe just because of our experiences, that we can't control you know, what happens or we're just along for the ride. And I think, you know, even Brandon Turner, as we, we've all talked about him, you know, he talks about getting the driver's seat. And so really that that adopting and changing in that microculture is, Hey, what are the things you can be in the driver's seat for and how do you spend your time and how do you spend your money and how do you spend your efforts and energy? And that's all the things that you're talking about. Very well said. Yeah. Well, and another thing in the book, and and I want to go a little bit further into that because we don't have a lot of folks on the podcast talk too much about budgeting, but that is a, a big step in this that, that comes after that microculture. That's one of those things we yeah. get to control a lot. So talk us through a little bit about one, you, you have this concept of gamifying budgeting and making right. it fun. I think a lot of times people hear that that statement budgeting and they just freak out or they recoil or they, they put it's, up the It's a terrible word. Even just coming like out of your mouth, it feels <laughs> awful, right? Like budgeting. Ah. But, uh, so, so yeah, as you talk in the book about this concept of gamifying it, uh, yeah. my eyes lit up a bit um, in a way yes. that they never have as I've thought about budgeting in the past. So Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that that resonates with you. I've had other people mention that as well. And it you do need to make it a game and you need to understand what is the what's the how do I beat this game? How do I win this game? And okay, you don't like the word budget. Okay, let's say project then. Let's have a financial project. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna build this project or I'm gonna create a plan for success. Budget, that's what budgets are. And I know that they're a downer because they feel like a diet, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I got to stop eating all the food that I love to eat. Uh, I got to stop buying all the stuff that I love to buy. Well, what I do in my book is I try to reframe how we spend our money. And let's just use the house hack example as one of five different things that I tackle that I, it's the game part of it. Okay. Let's, you know, so for example, in 1950, the average size home was 970 square feet. Today, the average new construction home, today, the average new construction is 2,400 square feet, almost three times larger than in 1950. In 1950, our families were three and a half people. Today, they're two and a half people. So our homes have tripled. Our families have shrunk by a third. 
And now each member of our family is occupying almost the same square footage in our homes that was the entire home in 1950. And, and you know, yesterday's luxury is today's expectation. And we have uh-huh. to understand that that we have, in order for us to build wealth, especially if we're on a meager salary, in order for us to build wealth, we cannot live luxurious lives today. We can later. We'll build a multi-million dollar net worth and we can absolutely splurge. And, you know, Dave Ramsey says, don't buy a brand new car until you can afford to lose money on it. Yes, that's good. That's a good tip. You know, don't buy a 2,400 square foot home or a 3,400 square foot home uh, until you can afford to do that. If you want to build wealth, let's gamify this house hacking. Actually, you could buy a 2,500 square foot home, carve off a section of it, rent out part of it to uh, as a studio apartment to somebody who can't afford to get their own house, have them pay half your mortgage, then take that money that you saved on your housing and invest it. And if you do that with all these different areas of your life, just look at it as a game. So whatever savings that you have, you invest that. And then you watch that investment gain 10% and then 20% and then it doubles and then it snowballs. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. Yeah. Well, and I, I think we, we play the game to win, right? Everybody yeah. wants to play. When we start playing games, the mindset is, I want to win. I want to do this. And so I think you're right. Oftentimes the mindset of budgeting is eliminating and losing and yeah. removing and cutting things out. Whereas this mindset and the shift that you encourage people to make is, hey, play the long game. And and yeah. it's so countercultural to everything today right. is instant gratification. Right. You've got to get it now. You've got to build it now, or you got to build the habit now, or you're not living the good life. Yep. Yeah. One of the things I say in the book is, you know, we buy stuff, we buy stuff, we buy brand new cars and big houses to make it look like we're successful, but, but we're not, we're broke. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if you can have the discipline to be smart about how you're spending money, your money now, later on, you you are wealthy and you will you will be able to go buy that big house and you will be able to have five nice cars if that's what you want. Um, and you actually will be successful and wealthy. Whereas now you look wealthy and successful, but you're broke and you're stressed and you can't, you get to the end of the month and you got less paycheck than you got bills and you're frustrated and, that, and you kick the dog and you know, all that stuff that comes out that's negative in it, it's, it's backwards. And so it, the, the, the concept of gamifying the budget is if, if you can follow the prescription that I have on allocation budgeting, which is this, the A in hacker, follow that prescription. You can actually increase your clothing budget, your entertainment budget, your dining out budget, your vacation budget. You can increase those categories if you're willing to tackle some of these massive luxury items like the home and the car and, and credit card balances that, 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 that is getting you something today that you can't keep that doesn't have value down the road, right? So if you can gamify all of those things, you can actually live on a bigger budget barring those few categories where we're we're working on gamifying and thinking through to the future. Yeah. And I love how that just goes hand in hand with what you were talking about before in the microculture um, yeah. of just having an awareness of there are 
unhealthy money habits in the microculture yeah. that is around me, but that uh, you have a very empowering message in your book and just in everything that you're communicating and that, hey, even though there's these unhealthy uh, culture around us, uh, we're not beholden to that. Yeah. We, we do have the power to uh, make the change uh, by reframing the way that we see um, budgeting by following the steps that you recommend in the, the allocation budget. So I love that message of hope. I know that that's going to be really helpful to um, your audience and to our listeners um, here. And then I, I wanted to uh, get into, I mean, obviously you've got uh, all of the experience on uh, the, the mission field. You've lived your life very purposefully with a lot of mission. I know that there's, um, there's a lot that's exciting. We've talked here about uh, the growing wealth and being able to have the, the luxuries later in life as you do it well. But I also want to talk uh, for you personally, uh, what does it mean to be wealthy? What's, what's the point of it all? I mean, you've touched on generosity some earlier. I know that a big priority for you personally, and as you talk about in the book, is um, the importance of, of people and people over money. But um, that's a big, broad question, but under the umbrella of wealth, I mean, what what is a wealthy life? Yeah, that is such a great question, and I'm so glad you asked it, and I think everybody listening to this needs to ask themselves that question and come up with an answer. Your answer can change down the road, by the way, but come up with an answer. Um, that I so everything that I'm doing now is everything in my life really is based on three philosophies. Um, one of them is as a human being, as a father, as a husband, as a neighbor, as a member of my community, as someone who's working with people and helping them break out of the paycheck to paycheck trap. Um, my job is to maximize everything that I've been given my money, my relationships my time, my energy, my health, um, my marriage, uh, my neighborhood. That's my responsibility to maximize everything that I've got. And at the same time, the second philosophy is put relationships ahead of my money, put relationships ahead of my wealth, my whatever all this stuff is. Um, and those two things are, are opposing forces and they keep each other in check, Right. And then the third philosophy is be extremely generous. And it kind of ties those two things together. If I can build significant wealth and if I put relationships first, generosity is just going to spill out, right? If I'm trapped in a paycheck to paycheck grind where I'm literally getting to the end of the month before I, uh, I'm getting to the end of the month and I have bills due that I don't have enough paycheck to cover, that stresses my relationships forget about being generous, that that takes time away from my health and my family and my neighborhood because I have to go grind out another thousand bucks. And so I think, I think building wealth is something that actually creates freedom and abundance. And I think that as human beings and even as Christian human beings, that is our responsibility. Uh, my basis for that biblically is Matthew 25, parable of the talents where uh, the, Jesus is telling the story and he, t and he talks about this wealthy person that gives talents to these three individuals. And anybody who thinks that the talent that he's talking about is like plate spinning, that's not the kind of talent we're talking about. 
it's a talent is basically in today's dollars like a million dollars of gold. Uh, there's another version that says the parable of the bags of gold. So we can't be confused what we're talking about here. And he and he says, give give five million dollars of gold to one guy, two million to one guy, and one million to the third guy. The first two guys go about investing the money and they double their money. The third guy is afraid and he buries it in a hole in the backyard. And when the when the owner of the money comes back and says, "Okay, what'd you do with the money that I gave you?" The first two guys give him double what they gave him, and the third guy gives him everything back that he that he gave him. The response here to me is very instructive. The the master tells the first two guys that doubled their money, "Well done, good and faithful servant." That famous line in the Bible, "Well done, good and faithful servant." Enter into the joy of the Lord. And, you know, theologians would say that sounds like heaven. Then he turns to the guy that just gave him all his money back. Mindful, he didn't lose anything, right? He gave him back what he was given. He says, you wicked and lazy servant, throw him out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Theologians might think that that's hell. So if we, what I take from that is if we don't maximize everything that we have been given, we are failing. Now, even if we go about the work of maximizing it, and we lose out, we make a mistake, and we lose some money, or we lose something, at least we are like like uh, Theodore Roosevelt, at least we're in the arena. We're marred by sweat and blood and, and, and tears, but at least we're in the arena, and we're not the poor soul that knows neither victory nor defeat. That is what we as human beings are supposed to strive towards. And, and I apply that to wealth, but I apply that to every area of my life as well. Well, and that that absolutely factors into every part of life. I mean, like you're saying, this is tied to relationships. It's tied yep. to calling. It's tied to success. And all of these work hand in hand. I think what I love so much about your story as well is that you've experienced the power of radical generosity because of how willing people were to give when you were on the mission field. And so you got to see lives changed. You got to see the impact in the communities and in the culture you were at. And yeah. all of that was only because people were willing to be radically generous. And so that's such a unique and helpful framework and such a helpful, powerful tool to push that forward. And and that's, yeah. I think, why we continue, you know, continue on the mission. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Yeah, completely agree. Now, I don't live out those three philosophies perfect every day. But I strive to, right? <laughs> Still human, and uh, I can appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. This is uh, this is rich, um, and uh, and I know that we could uh, keep unpacking each one of the the letters in the hacker acronym. Um, and as much as I would love to to do that. Uh, the good news is, is that you've written a book that uh, <laughs> thoroughly does <laughs> unpack those, and so um, we won't uh, we won't spoil all of the the goodness that's in there for uh, our listeners. I do encourage everybody to uh, pick up a copy of uh, the Hacker Method, which um, really by the time that this uh, episode is released, it should be available widely, right? I mean, I know yeah. I've, I've seen at least the the link on Amazon, which um, I think is where ninety eight 
98% of the world is getting their yeah. books these days. <laughs> right. um, at the end of the show, I, I will circle back and, and we'll include uh, show notes. But if there's a better spot for people to pick that up, um, we'll include a, a link to that too. But um, awesome. as we start to uh, to land the, the plane, um, Nick, do you want to take us into our, uh, our golden nugget round? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do that. And Brian, I know we uh, forewarned you we were we were jumping into this here at the end. However, I think we've covered most of these categories uh, today, <laughs> so it, it might be a little bit of re- repetition, but we're going to go for All it. Right. So sure. um, we talk at Abundant Journey about the five Fs, how they're all connected, but I'm only going to make you pick one. And so we have family, finance, faith, fitness, and future. As we're here early in 2024, what is one of those categories you're focused on and looking to grow in this year? Yeah. So I, I would, I'm going to pick, I'm trying, I'm working on all of those all the time, uh, trying to improve, but uh, let me pick family. Um, we were gone for so long and obviously when we came back, we would visit as much family as we possibly could. Uh, but my wife and I both, we're, we're, we're trying to be really intentional with our family. And, and this kind of comes back to um, wealth. Building wealth gives you an opportunity to do more with and for your family. And, uh, you know, one example is I, we have an uncle who's, who's very ill with, with ALS and uh, he's struggling. And it was a Tuesday and we decided we're just going to drive to Yume, Arizona, where they're at, three hours away. We're just going to go drive. And we're going to spend the day with them. You know, you can't do that if you're paycheck to paycheck. You can't do that if you... Uh, if you used up all your vacation days and it's a Tuesday. Um, and I think that that's just one of those things to where if we can put some focus on that and gamify our budget and all those different things, it just opens up opportunities for us to maximize our relationships in ways that that is much more difficult when we don't have that kind of freedom. And so we're trying to take advantage of that and and focus more on our family and be more generous with them and and spend more time with them. And and uh, so that's, that's what we're working on this year. But I am working on all those. I we can yeah. talk about all of them, but I think no, that's, that's, that's one that's important for me because we've been gone so long for so far away. Yep. No, I think that's great. And I think the listener who listens here and, and it's, I love again, the cover art where if pigs fly and you're just a living example of that. I mean, you have lived out the freedom and the potential that the wealth brings, but the people matter most. And you've said that over and over. People matter. The ability to significantly impact relationships, deepen relationships, that's the true end goal here. And and so I love that answer. Next one here, what's a quote, and you just gave us a couple, but what's a quote from book or mentor that stuck with you along your journey? Yeah. um, So uh, I've got, I've got a bunch and and I love that Theodore Roosevelt quote. Um, and, and whenever I'm having a rough day, I just read that whole thing. It's a, it's a pretty long paragraph, actually. And you just read the whole thing, and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm, like, I'm just like Teddy. Um, uh, I would say that I had a mentor. Um, <laughs> I had a mentor. His name is George Fermanian. He's a, an amazing guy. He I don't know. He made $100 bucks or something like that building uh, big apartment complexes in San Diego. And uh, I called him up one day. And, and this is a tip, too, by the way. When you know someone who's been successful, um, ask them to mentor you. They may say no, but they might say yes. And I called this guy who was this mega guy. And I said, hey, would you mentor me? He goes, yeah, of course. Send me over your portfolio. Let's talk. So I sent him over my thing and, and I jump on the phone. I'm so excited to get 
you know, tips from him. And the first thing he says, you have way too much equity. And I was like, what? Way too much <laughs> equity. How could you have too much equity? And he just explained, he broke down, explained to me the importance of, of leverage on, on appreciating an income producing real estate. And he just kind of taught me the game that took him from nothing to a hundred million and just really kind of gave me that lesson. And I will just never forget that you've got way too much equity, which is completely opposite of what you think you're trying to accomplish. Right. So now he wasn't saying you have too much wealth. He was saying your buildings are not producing enough because you have too much equity in each building. So just Mm -hmm. that little nugget right there. It's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's always been very powerful for me. That's super helpful. And I, I think on that, you know, the leverage game, when you truly understand how to do it well and safely, like you have, yeah. you know, the options are endless and the, the sky's the limits. So yeah. that's exciting. Yep. Next one here, what's a dream or goal that you have that you've not been able to make happen yet? You know, I would I would love to have, I would love to help a thousand people become multimillionaires. That's a goal that I have, um, and the book is the first step in that. Um, we're also launching a community um, where we're going to journey together um, and and work through the hacker method and, and all that kind of stuff. And actually, I have a website, theunexpectedinvestor.com is the website, and the, the community has launched there. And so, yeah, I want a 1,000 people to join alongside of me and, and break out of the paycheck-to-paycheck grind and start to build wealth so that they can put relationships first and become extremely generous in the process. That's so good. Excited to be a, be a part and, and walk that journey with you. So that's awesome. Last question here. At the end of your life, what do you hope you'll be remembered for? <laughs> I, you know, I, one time jokingly, I told my wife, when I, when I die, I want somebody to put up a statue of me. And she was like, oh, that's the worst thing in the world to say. And I had to clarify it. And I said, I, I, I want the fact that I have made such a big impact on the community that they would want to do something like that. Not because I want a place for pigeons to, to land, but but I want to have that level of an impact that 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 people don't know any other way but to express their their appreciation for for what we've done. I just I really want to impact my environment I in a positive, positive way, right? So yeah. I'll, I'll stick with that. My wife is going to be really upset, but that's it. <laughs> uh, that's amazing, man. No, I, uh, I, I love it. I mean, even, uh, seeing the, uh, the Kobe Bryant statue that just went up, uh, outside oh, yeah. of Staples Center in, in LA, you know, and, uh, and yeah, it's like, uh, it, it just, it's a testament to, uh, the kind of, uh, impact that he's had on that, that yeah. city and that place. And, um, and so, yeah, what an honor that that would be. And throughout this entire interview, I mean, I, I just love, um, the consistency in what you're doing. Uh, certainly you've been uh, very successful yourself in real estate and entrepreneurship. Um, it would be easy uh, much easier to just hoard <laughs> everything that you have learned and to just be content uh, with that. Um, but you have been incredibly generous with your time and with your knowledge. I know that um, writing a book is not a task for the faint of heart. It's uh, right. it's easy to take it for granted when you walk into a Barnes and Noble or you're looking along Amazon and seeing all of these uh, finished books. But I know that that just takes 
hours and hours and hours of, uh, of writing, of thinking, of editing, of going back and forth. So um, that's an incredibly generous thing that you've done. As I say time and time again to all of our listeners, there's just no better way to invest 20, 30, yeah. whatever the, the cost of the, the book is. Uh, the return on that uh, 20, 30 dollars, you know, as you're talking about here, uh, could lead to a life that you know is filled with multi-millions. Um, so excited yeah. about the community that you're launching. Very grateful that you've written the book. Very, very grateful for all of the ways that what you're doing resonates with what we're trying to build here at Abundant Journey and with uh, our uh, little tribe and community of, of listeners and um, members. So for people to connect further with you, I know you've mentioned the unexpected investor. I'm going to drop the link uh, to that in okay, the description. Cool. There'll also be a link to where people can pick up the hacker method. Where is the best spot uh, for people to to grab that? Can they get that from the uh, unexpected investor website, or where would you have them go? Yeah, we're actually pointing everybody to Amazon. Um, if, Perfect. If and, and we're actually offering the Kindle version for just 99 cents for the first seven days. So from February 27th to March 5th, it's 99 cents. And the reason for that, it is, it is I wanted to give first. I want to get it into as many hands as we possibly can. I want to have an impact. And so uh, there's just no excuse not to pick it up if it's 99 cents, right? So no, that's an absolute no-brainer. That's awesome. Yeah, and then the paperback is 20 and the hardback is 25. But yeah, Amazon's the best place to go. But if you search, it'll pop up on other sites. But Amazon's the best place to go. Yeah. And one thing that I'll encourage our listeners to do is uh, certainly pick it up, but then also leave a review. I know how helpful yeah, that can exactly. be as far as uh, people uh, discovering it. And then are you active anywhere on, on social media? If people yeah. wanted to just follow along, um, what are some of the handles or where would you have them go? Where are you most active? Yeah, we're on TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and all four of those is at Unexpected Investor. So just Perfect. type in that tagline or that handle. That's where we're at. We'd love to have you join join on. We're all, we're very active on all those channels. Fantastic. I love it, man. Well, uh, all of those links in the description below. So listeners do be sure to check those out. And uh, while you're at it, if you would leave the Abundant Journey podcast a review, share it with a friend. Let's get the message about uh, the hacker method out as far and wide as we possibly can. But Brian, this has been an amazing conversation. Super grateful for you. Grateful for your time. Uh, wish you all the best with the book. And as you continue to uh, grow this community and, uh, and help people um, on their path to, uh, to wealth and, uh, and a good life. Thank you, both Nick and Nick. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you. It was so much fun. And let's, uh, let's stay connected. Let's, let's keep working together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, listeners, thanks again for coming along with us. We'll be back next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Bye.